Good morning. I'm Nathan, one of the ministers on staff here at Venture Christian Church. I'm going to read a passage before we pray, and uh, we're actually going to read it out loud after I read it myself. Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 7 says, But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Would you read that out loud with me? But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we're thankful for the time that we can open up the Word of God. We're thankful for the treasure that it is and the way it infiltrates our hearts and our minds and our souls. And I pray that it speaks to us in a day uh, that you speak to us today in a way uh, that is supernatural. We can get something this morning that no other area of the world can give us, no other part of the world can give us. We can only get it from you. And so that's what we're praying for, ears that will hear what the Spirit says to us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all the Lord's children said, amen. It's kind of a neat time of the year. School has started. Uh, specifically, colleges have just kind of gotten back going. And it, it reminded me of a story of a college town where school had just begun and a new college student walked into a department store. The lady behind the counter asked, can I help you with anything? Anything you need help? He said, well, I, I would like seven pairs of underwear. And she thought, well, that's kind of an odd, an odd request, seven pairs of underwear. And she said, do, do you mind me asking, why do you want seven pairs of underwear? He said, well, I'm a, I'm a college student. I don't want to do my laundry very often. And so I just want one for every day of the week, one for Sunday, one for Monday, one for Tuesday, one for Wednesday, one for Thursday, one for Friday, one for Saturday. And she thought, well, actually, that's, that, that kind of makes sense. About an hour later, another student walked in, and uh, she said, can I help with anything? And he said, I'd like 12 pairs of underwear, please. She thought, well, that's weird. I understand seven. Can I ask you, why do you want 12? And he said, well, I don't want to do my laundry very often. I want one for January, one for February, <laughs> one for March. <laughs> What that have to do with the sermon? Nothing at all, but it is a good story. <laughs> if this is your first time, uh, this is a good day to be here. We're starting a new series this morning, and as we start this new series, this is one that's been brewing inside of me for a while. This has been coming for several months. It's on a Christian virtue, one that we don't talk about much, one that I don't think Christians value all that much. Uh, but I believe it's one of the most important Christian virtues that we can possibly possess. But I, I don't think most people think that. I was reading an article this week written by Crosswalk. They wrote an article, the top 10 Christian virtues. And, and here they are. Love, honesty, sexual morality, trust, kindness, faith, hope, charity, responsibility, compassion. All those are good. Those are good Christian virtues. But the one that we're talking about for the next several weeks wasn't on there. And I don't think you can do any of those without the Christian virtue that we're going to talk about Today And if I'm reading my Bibles correctly, this virtue goes from Genesis to Revelation. This is all throughout the Scriptures. What we're talking about today is something that I need to hear. It's something that you need to hear. It is something that umbrellas all those Christian virtues, and I don't think we can do without. And allow me just to be up front. The goal of this series is by the end of it that you would have it if you don't have it. And if you do have a little bit of it, that you would have a whole lot more of it. And it is simply this virtue right here. Don't give up. Don't give up. Would you say that out loud? Don't give up. I don't know what the proper word, endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. There's a lot of words we could throw in there. But it's just that attribute that says, I will not give up on God. Now, there are some things that you might be tempted to give up on. There are some things maybe you ought to give up on. 
I was in the choir in seventh grade, and somebody nudged me, you know, maybe you ought to give up. And, okay, so there, there's some times that you ought to give up. But we should never give up on God. I do premarital counseling every now and then. I'm really bad at it. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to say because every marriage is different. Everybody brings a different amount of baggage into the room, right? We all bring a different amount of baggage. I don't give many rules. I don't. I give some suggestions. I, I have suggestions, but I, but I don't give many rules. I have about five or six su- uh, suggestions. Then I give one rule, and the rule is not to love one another. That's not the rule. The rule is not, I, I tell you what, if you love one another, then it's all going to be okay. Actually, sometimes uh, love doesn't tend to be enough. Here's my one rule that I do give in premarital counseling. It is simply this. Don't walk out of the house. That's it. Don't walk out of the house. Don't walk out. When there's an argument, when there's disagreement, when he blew it, when she blew it, when, they, when, when, it's, when it's at the end of the rope and you're tempted to do what maybe we're all tempted to do, at time, you know what, I just need 30 minutes, I'm going to go drive around, I'm going to clear my head, you don't want me to talk to you the way I'm feeling right now, you want me to walk out, baby. You know, when you're feeling that, don't do it. Take walking out off, off the list of options for you, and here's why. When you make it a possibility that you'll walk out for 30 minutes, the next time you'll walk out for three hours. And when you walk out for three hours, the next time you walk out, you might walk out for three days. And if you're willing to walk out for three days, you'll be willing to walk out for three, three weeks. And if you're willing to walk out for three weeks, eventually you'll walk out. You have opened the door to the possibility that I could walk out. As a matter of fact, when we dive into marriages that have broken up, you can almost always trace it back. There was one time where they just walked out for a little while. Take walking out, take giving up oft, off the list of options. Now, here's what I want to encourage you with today. This isn't about marriage, but would you take walking out on God off your list of options? Would you do that this morning? Would you put a stake in the ground that says, I will not walk out on God, not for 30 minutes, not for three hours, not for three weeks, not for three months, not for three years. It doesn't matter what comes my way. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how much pain there is. It doesn't matter how much doubt I have. I'm not walking out on God. How many of you are with me on that? That is an important Christian attribute. Now, before we dive into this series and this message specifically, I want to give a disclaimer I don't want to give the idea today that life isn't hard. I don't want you to come to church today and the preacher go up and say, it's not that bad. Don't give up. You're acting like it's a big deal and it's really not. You're acting like it's a thunderstorm when there's really just a sprinkle. No, sometimes there is a thunderstorm. Sometimes there's a hurricane. Sometimes it's just as dark as you think it might be. Sometimes life is really hard. Sometimes there's some pressure. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not biblical, and it's not helpful to walk in here today and for all of us just put our arms around each other and say it's not that bad. No, sometimes it is that bad, isn't it? Do you know what I'm talking about? If you live long enough, you'll bleed. And my guess is all of us know that. The Bible doesn't teach that it doesn't get that bad. The Bible teaches it does get that bad. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 puts it this way. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not most of you, not 78% of you. How many of you? Everyone. 
who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Did he just call those sufferings? He just called them sufferings. He didn't say, eh, they're not that bad. No, there are sufferings. Galatians 6, 2 commands us to bear one another's burdens. Well, that implies that we have burdens. If there's a command to bear one another's burdens. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Not if we run into problems and trials, when we run into problems and trials. And then the ultimate verse on it is John 16, verse 33, here on earth, here in Cyprus, here in Katy, you will have many trials and sorrows. That verse doesn't act like there's not hurt. That verse doesn't say it's not that bad. It says the opposite. There are trials, and actually, do you notice the word many? Life will bring you many trials and sorrows. So we're not going to play a make-believe game in this series that life isn't that hard. We're not going to do that, okay? That's, that's my disclaimer. We're not going to sit here and say it's not that bad. That's not biblical. That's not helpful. But here, here is what's helpful. The end of John 16, verse 33, here's what the rest of the verse says. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I, Jesus, has overcome the world. Are you thankful for that? That's the good news of the gospel. I have overcome the world. What's all those verses saying? Life is hard. Don't give up. Life is hard, don't give up. Life is hard, don't give up. Just want you to take a moment, turn to the person next to you and say, life is hard, don't give up. In our quest as a church, we can make this mistake. I've made this mistake in ministry. I made it a lot more in my earlier years in ministry. I try not to make it anymore. But in our quest to win people to Jesus Christ, we can make the mistake of... Well, how do I put... So I've sat down in a lot of dining room tables, a lot of living rooms, a lot of restaurants, and talked to people about salvation, how to become a Christian, and people, hey, so how can I become a Christian? We walk through the scriptures, and I have forgotten way too many times whenever I have that conversation to let them know, hey, this is going to be awesome. There's going to be euphoria. There's going to be a buzz. There's going to be electricity. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. You're going to have all that, sh- all that shame is going to be washed away. The blood of Christ has forgiven you. All that's good. You're going to feel amazing when you're done with your baptism. You are. But I have forgotten way too many times to remind them, just, just heads up, in about three months, you're going to be tempted to give up. Because once the euphoria runs off, once the buzz runs off, once the, there's going to be another burden that comes. It's going to come. You're going to be tempted. Do you think Satan's going to give up on you once you're baptized? Do you think he's going to give up on you? As a matter of fact, not only does he not give up on you, I think he kicks it into overdrive. Do you know what I'm talking about? And his goal is just to add a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression, a little bit of discouragement, a little bit of a rift. And if he can get in there, if he can get you to give up, If he can get you to have the option of walking out just for 30 minutes, he's got you. And I've made the mistake. So if you're listening today and you're considering becoming a Christian, I just want to give you a heads up. There'll be a time. There will come a time that you'll wonder, was this real? Did it click? Did it take? Were my sins really washed away? Here's an opinion. This is outside of Scripture. It's just my opinion. There's something about that first year. If you can get through that first year, and I don't, this is just my experience. A lot of people come to Christ and then three months later, yeah, see ya. Six months, nine months. If you can get through the first year, 
and battle the attacks that Satan throws at you. Man, there's something about that first year. And so in your Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last, it's the last book in your Bible. So if you don't know where Revelation is, go to the very back. It's right in front of the maps. Revelation chapter 2. The apostle John writes it. He was the last living apostle. All the other disciples had gone. They had been martyred. They had been killed. They're gone off the face of the earth. And John writes this confusing book that for some reason Christians argue over. If you're new to the faith or if you're not a Christian, well, why would you guys argue over a book? I don't know either why we argue over a book. But the book of Revelation was intended to be an encouragement to Christians, not a discouragement to Christians, not a book of confusion, but it was meant to encourage us. And we run into a church today, it's called the church in Smyrna, who would be tempted to give up. And Jesus has something to say to them. He has something to say to us. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, it says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And we don't know who that angel is. Maybe every church has an angel. Maybe that's what that meant. Most scholars believe that word angel is a word that means messenger. It's probably talking to the preacher of the church in Smyrna. But who does Jesus write to? He writes to his church. He doesn't write to seven he doesn't write to seven nations. He doesn't write to seven governments. He doesn't write to the UN. He doesn't write to the future United States of America. His main interest in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, where he writes seven letters to seven churches, his main interest is the church. His main interest was not who's going to win the Democratic nominee for the election in 2020. But I did watch some of that debate the other night, which took place in Houston. His great interest is us because we are the light of the world. And when the church is healthy and we're clicking on all cylinders and we're doing what God has called us to do, the church is the hope of the world. Amen? That's who we are. There will be no real lasting change in Russia. There will be no change in Mexico. There's no change in Texas. There's no change in Houston until the church rises up and becomes who God has called us to become. The last verse of Revelation chapter 1 says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Those lampstands represent churches. Well, what does a lampstand do? Gives light. A lampstand, I'll catch this. A lampstand doesn't have light. It transmits light. A lampstand has oil, it has a wick, and somebody lights it, and it, it doesn't have light, it transmits light. And the church is the light of the world. We don't have the light, we are transmitting the light from the one who said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the church, wherever we are, in North Korea, in Germany, in Cyprus, in Katy, in the midst of a dark world, we are in the midst of this world, and we are to be transmitting the light of Christ wherever we go, in the midst of violent shootings. And there was a gun in a Cyprus school this last week. There was a kid arrested for that. In the midst of racism, in the midst of bigotry, we are to come into this world, into this dark world, and shine the light of Christ. The concern of Jesus was, how's my church doing? And by the way, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more concerned you will be about the church. You will. One of the ways you know that you're walking with Jesus is because you, you are concerned about his church. You have become active in his church. You have latched onto the mission of his 
church. Congress, the government, the House of Representatives, the White House, they can't change one person. They have no power. All power and authority has been given to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Laws won't change hearts. 154 years ago, the largest war on our soil ended. It was called the Civil War. And when the Civil War ended, some laws were changed. The main law that was changed was slavery was abolished. A law was changed. African Americans, not to be slaves anymore, and praise God for that. But here's what we've discovered now, 154 years later, did those new laws change hearts? Did it change the hatred that was inside people's hearts? And so we're still battling it. We're still running into it. We're still seeing it in all different kinds of forms 154 years later because, yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad the law changed, but it didn't change people's hearts. It's amazing how many Christians know more about the stock market and the entertainment business and the sports business than they do about the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus was concerned about his church. And then in verse 8, it says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. In other words, these are the words of the author of creation and the author of eternity who died and came to life again. Who died and came to life again. Those are the words of not the crucified Jesus. These are the words of the resurrected Jesus. Now, this has a double meaning, this who died and came to life again. He's writing to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna died as a town in 500 B.C. They were wiped off the map. For 210 years, there was no Smyrna. But in 290 B.C., all of a sudden, Smyrna kind of resurrected. The town was rebuilt, and there was a nickname for the church in Smyrna. People would talk about the church in Smyrna. Oh, that's the, ta- or the, the town of Smyrna. They would say, that's the town who died and came, to, and came back to life. And Jesus is writing to the church in Smyrna, and he says, hey, I know who I'm writing to. I know who you are, and I am the one who died and came to life again. I know you. And then he says in verse 9, I not only know you, I know your, what's the next word, church? Afflictions and your poverty. Afflictions is a word here that means pressured between two plates. It means pressured on every side, smashed together. If you would just take your hands, everybody, I I just want you to feel it. I I want you to hear what Smyrna was going through. Take both hands, drop your Bible for a second. The only time you'll ever hear a preacher say that. Take both hands, and on the count of three, let's just all put the pressure together. One, two, three. That's what Smyrna was feeling. They were feeling pressure. Uh, The biblical word here for afflictions is actually a word that means crushed. The Christians in Smyrna were being crushed. Many scholars will call the church in Smyrna the, the suffering church. We ought to really call it the crushed church, the church that was crushed. He says, I know your afflictions, verse 9, and I know your poverty. In the Roman Empire which Smyrna was a part of, they were the first town to give their allegiance to Caesar. Everybody had their loyalty to Caesar, but Smyrna had an extra loyalty to Caesar. And so the Roman Empire congratulated him. They rewarded him. They got special treatment. The Roman Empire loved Smyrna. On their church, their pagan church services that Smyrna had, every week they would drop incense into a bucket And everybody in the town of Smyrna would drop this incense into a bucket and they would pronounce with their mouth, Caesar is Lord. That was their allegiance level to the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. Everybody would do that in the town of Smyrna except who? The Christians. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. Rather, they would say Jesus is Lord. 
And because of that, the Roman Empire said, open season on the Christians. Kidnap them, fire them from their businesses, hurt their families, divide their families, kill their families. Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John, was actually killed in the town of Smyrna. He was burnt alive. Open season on the Christians. It was not only legal, it became encouraged. Jesus says, I know your afflictions, I know your poverty. And then in verse 9 it says, I I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Just a little side lesson. This isn't part of the sermon, but did you know? Okay, slander. What is slander? Slander is character assassination. That's what that is. Have you ever felt that? Somebody's talking about you behind your back and it's not even true. It cut, it's murder with words. It hurts. It hurts. And he says this, slander is satanic. That's what he just said. Slander is satanic. That's how deep, that's how bad slander is in the eyes of our God. Jesus is saying, I I know all this is going on to you. And he looks at us here today and he says, I know what's going on in your life. Hey, Jesus knows. Jesus knows all the good, all the different ways that you said no to temptation. Jesus has seen it. He's also seen all the ways you said yes to temptation. He has seen it. He knows your afflictions. He knows your poverty. He knows what you're going through. He knows your heartache. He knows the crushing feeling that's happening in that relationship in the family. He knows the bullying that's going on at school. He knows that job, uh, that, that, that coworker who's cutting you down behind your back. He knows what your boss is doing to you. He knows what that employee is doing to you. He knows knows what is crushing you. He knows the financial pressure that is crushing you. Jesus comes in here today and he says, I know. I know what you're going through. He sees it and he acknowledges it. And then verse 10, he says, do not, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Time out. Time out. Jesus, you know more is coming and you're not gonna do anything about it. You know there's 10 more days of suffering. We're about to be, whoa, is this the Jesus I serve? A lot of people come up and they say, Nathan, I believe in the Jesus of the New Testament. Do you believe in the Jesus of the New Testament? I believe in the Jesus that could raise the dead, that could heal the blind, that could give, uh, that could give uh, the walking ability to the lame. I believe in the Jesus that heals. And I say, I believe in that Jesus too, but I believe in the Jesus of the entire New Testament. He doesn't always do that. Do you believe in the Jesus of the whole New Testament? Actually, there's more stories in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't deliver you out of the pain or the hardship than he does. There's more stories in the Bible where God doesn't bring you out of the pressure. He makes you go through it. He looks at this church in Smyrna and says, he says, there's more pressure coming. Do not be afraid of that. And then verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. If you're a writer in your Bible, you can write the words, don't give up, right there. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. He's simply saying, don't give up. This is the part of the sermon, uh, just so you know. This is the part of the sermon where you're thinking, okay, this is where Nathan's going to say, uh, shame on us when we feel like giving up because somebody wasn't driving right in front of us. Compared to the people in Smyrna, look at what they were dealing with. Oh, that was the United States of American Christians, and we are tempted. Look at the difference of what, and, 
and they fought through it. That's, this is where Nathan's going to say that, right? I'm not. And here's why I'm not. You don't have to be in a war zone in Smyrna to feel crushed. If we were to take a poll in here today and we were to ask how many of you, if, if you were to be honest, how many of you are feeling financial pressure right now, I think more people would say yes than what we act like when we walk in. You're feeling crushed, and God knows it. Don't give up. Maybe somebody in here today has a relational pressure. There's somebody in their life that's just constant. It never goes away. It never ends. There's a constant pressure on me in that particular relationship. And if we were to take a poll in here today and we were to be honest, there'd be some crushing feelings about those. Maybe there's a sin, there's a habit, there's a stronghold that's crushing you right now. Jesus doesn't downplay your suffering compared to Smyrna's suffering. You don't have to be in Smyrna to feel crushed. I had a basketball coach when uh, I was playing basketball, he would, it was two or three months before the season, and we were in the weight room, and he would say this. The weight room, and he's referring to conditioning and weights, he would say, the season is won or lost in the weight room. What are you talking about? We don't even have a basketball. We're not running any plays. There's no X's and O's. Why is the season won or lost in the weight room three months before the season starts? What's up with that? Well, he knew this. In the fourth quarter, with two minutes to go in the game, and somebody drives around you because your legs are too tired, that's where the game is won or lost. He knew when you're shooting a jump shot with a minute and a half to go in the fourth quarter and you can't elevate with your legs because your legs are too tired, that's when the game was won or lost. And we started to figure out this, at least I started to figure out this, in the fourth quarter with two minutes to go, everybody's tired. It's not about they're tired and we're not tired or vice versa. It's who's gonna fight through the tiredness. The season is won or lost in the weight room. There's an old-time referee in the NFL. He tells the story, Tommy Bell. He said, people have no idea how much professional athletes suffer, but they just don't give up. 1971 Super Bowl, Kansas City Chiefs are in it. He tells the story. He was refereeing uh, that, that Super Bowl game. There was an end by the name of Fred Arbonis for the Chiefs, and he had a head-on collision with the opposing end, and Fred Arbonis's fake eye fell out. In front of millions of people on television, it just started rolling around on the AstroTurf in the middle of the game. And up until that point, nobody knew that he had, a, that he had only one eye. No, no, he just kept playing. His entire career just kept playing with one eye. Nobody knew. He hid the situation. It's just rolling around the eye. Fred Arbonis chases it down. He picks it up. He calls the water boy over. He splashes some water on it sticks it back in. And Tommy Bell looked at Fred. He said, you have one eye? You mean to tell me you've been playing all these years with one eye? Fred, your eyesight, that's your livelihood. What would happen if you lost the other eye? And Fred said, I think I'd become a referee like you, sir. <laughs> well, I like that story. Matthew 24, verse 13 says, The one who endures to the end shall be saved. I think God wants to look at you in the face today and say, I know you're tired. I know the pressure. He may even say there's more coming. But he says, look at where you are today. You're here. You haven't given up. Well done. Don't give up on God. Hey, everybody gets tired. Missionaries get tired. Group leaders get tired. Volunteers of Venture Christian Church get tired. Team leaders of Venture Christian Church get tired. The preacher of Venture Christian Church gets tired. The amount of pain that sits in the chairs today, hey, we're all tired. But let's not give up on God. A few years ago, Doug, you've never heard this story, but... Uh, our music minister, Doug, we served at the same church at our last church as well. There was a lady who came in my office 
And she just poured out her heart on what's going on. I, I can't even tell you today how bad what was going on in her life. And when she shares that kind of stuff with me, I keep it confidential. I don't even tell my wife. When people share with me that kind of stuff, it doesn't go home. It doesn't go to my wife. Nobody hears about it. So I was holding on to this this, this week of what she was going through. And it was, it was about as bad as I've, as I've heard. She was on the music team. And uh, I got word that Doug had asked her to to lead a song that week, to sing a song to the church. And I thought, oh, no, not this week. You don't, uh, what she's going through. And I, I didn't, I, I thought about, I thought about, hey, how about you pull off on that? But I didn't. And she said, yeah, I'll do it. And that week during church, I sat on that side of the auditorium and I watched her sing that song in two different morning services. And it was all I could do to hold it in. With what she had going on, and she wouldn't give up. And after the service, we're back in the foyer, and she walked by me, and I, I, I ran up to her, and I put my arm around her, and I, I said, well done. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I know there had to be more hurting people in this church. I wanted to bless them today. Even in the midst of her pain, she loved the church. She would not give up on God. One of the most important Christian virtues that you can put in your spiritual gym bag today is I'm not giving up on you, God. Hey, a lot of people come. A lot of people come for three weeks. A lot of people come for three months. Not a lot of people stay. One time Jesus looked at his disciples. You're going to leave me too? You're going to give up on me too? You're going to walk out too? As Shira comes to play, I want to end with a couple verses. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to reread this. I want you to read it out loud with me, church. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, question about that. Who said that? Jesus said that. Does he have a right to say that? Does he have the leverage? Does he have the history where he can say, don't give up? Look at this verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, talking of Jesus. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. If anyone can say, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus can say, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the... If anybody can say, don't give up, it's Jesus who can say, don't give up. Whenever he was 40 days, as tired as you can be in the desert, as hungry as you can be in the desert, and Satan gave him his best shot, Jesus wouldn't give up. Whenever he goes back to his hometown and they try to kill him, Jesus wouldn't give up. When his own family rejected him and didn't believe him, Jesus wouldn't give up. Now listen, church, when Jesus hung on the cross and everybody turned their back on him, including his best friends, did Jesus give up? Jesus wouldn't give up. He can say, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was, he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus was crushed. The weight of our sin, we crushed it. I crushed it. The weight of Nathan Bolt's sin is what crushed him, and he wouldn't give up on me. Do you know that? He hasn't given up on you. Do you know that? You say, well, I think he should. I haven't talked to him in a week. I think God should give up on me. 
I haven't talked to him in a month. I haven't acknowledged him in a year. I think God ought to give up on me. Well, he hasn't. He hung on that cross for you and for me. There's two possible decisions this morning. Some of you have never said what the church in Smyrna said. Some of you have never said, Jesus is Lord. Never said that. What a great day. God's never given up on that day for you. He'd love for that day to be today. We're about to sing a song and you can come forward and we'd love to take your confession that Jesus is Lord. But there's also a second decision that I want to encourage everybody else. If you have said Jesus is Lord in your life, have you ever told him, I'm not giving up on you, God? Have you ever said that? Have you ever drawn a line in the sand? Have you ever written your name down for him? Nathan Bolt will not give up on you. I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision this morning. We have two tables down front, and during this next song, I'm going to ask you, if you want to say on September 15th, 2019 is the day I made the decision. I, I not only gave my life to Christ back five years ago, 10 years ago, but today I've decided I'm not walking out the door, not for three minutes on God. I'm going to be the first one who signs it whenever we're singing. We got pens, Sharpies, papers down front. If you want to make that decision, so, so here's the deal. Write your name down and put a date next to it. And you say, why would you do that? Because I know this, whenever I signed for my mortgage at the bank, they wanted my signature and the date. And once they had my signature and date, they had the rest of my life. Do you know what I'm talking about? I was tied to it. And it ought to be that way. If I sign my name to something, it ought to be that way. Would you sign your name? And you date it and you let God know and we're gonna keep it as a church. I'm not giving up on you.